the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah I'm an India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Welcome back. We are doing episode 13. Episode 13. And this is slightly different. We have a slightly different format today because we have a special guest. Yay! Special guest alert! Welcome, Tom. Hello. So, do you want to say a little bit about yourself, Tom? Uh, yeah, so, hi everyone. Um, my name's Tom Clemens. I am a research fellow in the School of Geography and Geosciences at the University of Edinburgh. And I'm also Hannah's partner. No, ne- me. no nepotism here. We, yeah. yeah, no nepotism whatsoever. Tom is, is my um, cohabiting partner, and we are in a genuine and subsisting relationship, according to the British government. Um, so officially recognised. Officially recognised. A very expensive piece of plastic to prove it. Yeah. Yes. yes. So what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about Hillsborough. Yes. Um, and I, as the American and non-football fan in the room, um, will be listening quite a bit. Hillsborough is in the news this week. Um for very important reasons, but we're going to provide what I think is some really interesting background about this particular event, and we're going to talk a lot about Britain today, we're going to talk about class, we're going to talk about football, we're going to talk about geography. Yes, so this is football in Britain, so it's soccer um, for our American listeners, and Hillsborough is the name of a football soccer stadium in Sheffield in, in northern England. And in 1989, it was the the location of the greatest sporting disaster Britain has seen. So at a, a FA Cup semi-final match between Nottingham Forest and Liverpool in 1989, there was um, a stampede, a crowd control problem, whatever label you use, all within scare quotes, which eventually led to 96 people dying. Including children. Including children, fans, ordinary people, men and women. So part of the reason why Hillsborough is important is not just because of what happened on the day, even though that was um, unprecedented, hasn't nothing like that has happened before or since in Britain, but also for what happened next, right, Tom? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Hillsborough, the disaster when it happened was, so it was 1989, and... Yes, it was a semi-final in the FA Cup. It's a massive, massive event in uh, British soccer. So you can say football, it's okay. Soccer, okay. football. Yeah. It gave you permission football. to say football. <laughs> but on behalf of your nation? On behalf of my nation, my people, we and will put up with different. 45 minutes of referring to the game of soccer as football. Mm. Cultural sensitivity. American imperialism. <laughs> so it's football it shall be. Yeah, so this was a, a, a massive uh, um, sporting event. Yeah, lots of media attention, lots of media coverage. Even as the disaster was unfolding, even as the tragedy was unfolding, there were kind of wheels put in motion to paint the events in a particular way. Um, as soon as as soon as it became apparent that things were going very wrong, there was a there were things put in place or actions were taken to paint what happened in a very particular way. What's that? 
that story. Yeah, I mean, what according to to the media generally, what is what so, did happen? So, what yeah, so the context? Yeah. So at the time in British football stadia, fans typically stood on the terraces as opposed to as opposed to having seats, which means, of course, more people were allowed in by you know per square foot or whatever. On this particular day, the police officer in charge of the overseeing the the match had never occupied that position before. He had never supervised a, a football match of that stature before. And due to a number of reasons, partly because it took longer to allow fans in and so on and so forth, around the time of the start of the match, there was what was perceived to be an incident of overcrowding outside the stadium near a particular gate. Yeah, actually there's something else to note here as well in that the, the Liverpool fans... Uh, were larger in number actually than yes. the uh, Nottingham Forest fans, and that was known prior to the game. So there was a, there was already an understanding there were going to be more Liverpool fans attending the match. But despite this, the the allocation of tickets seemed to be um, didn't seem to reflect the fact that there'd be more Liverpool fans at the game. And in fact, I think the distribution of Liverpool fans in the, inside the stadium didn't seem to reflect the fact that they would be greater yes. in number. Yeah, so Liverpool in advance asked for more space yes. and the club stadium authorities rejected that, that request. So, flash forward to the day of the game, you have this pressure building, pressure of crowd building at that particular gate. And this inexperienced police commander ordered the gates to be opened which meant 2,000 fans streamed in, ran in, trying to escape the, the pressure of the overcrowding. And there was only one place they could have gone, which is underneath the tunnel, into the, into the stadium itself. And the stadium was separated out into pens, that's the word they, they use, in order to control crowds. So you, you couldn't go from one section of the stadium to another, you were, you were boxed in. And the tunnel led to one pen, which was already overflowing. So 2,000 fans streamed under through the tunnel into this already overflowing pen and there was no way for any for, and because, for the to go. And because at this point um stadium in soccer stadiums, football stadiums in Britain were all standing. Um or certainly most mostly. mostly standing. So there was no kind of obvious indication that the stand is full, you know, before it's kind of too late. So there's no sense that there's the seats are all gone or whatever. Yeah. There's just more more people can can physically and actually that's often what happened. Yeah. You know, would... and, and part of the reason for all this crowd control mechanism was the fact that at this point in, in British history, football fans had a very bad reputation. There had been a number of incidents of violence. Number of, you had the, the, the word football hooligan was a recognised term. Um, and there were incidents of fans fighting within with each other, there were incidents of riots, stampeding. Uh, so the reason why the the pens were carefully separated out using barriers, using crash barriers, was to try to control the crowds. So the, the fans were f facing the crash barrier that separated them from the pitch where, the, where the, mat, the, the match was taking place. And they couldn't climb over because the, the barriers were designed to try to prevent match, pitch invasions. Mm. Um, so they were just squashed against against the barrier. And when 
eventually through the force of the crowd the barriers started to break and people started to climb over the first in the initial response of the police was that this was a pitch invasion mm. so they sent police officers to patrol the 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 front of the 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 sec- that section to stop people from climbing over except there was nowhere else to go uh, and by the time anyone by the time the police realized quite what was happening people were already dying yeah and it's important to note as well that this was so as this was happening the match was actually taking place yes. so the match had started uh, as people were still i think they were the match had started as people were still coming in yes so this this event this this event was unfolding as the match was taking place um and i think i think the match was halted at about 20 minutes in is yes. that right yes. maybe 70 minutes in um yeah and so i think there was an interview with Bruce Grobelar, who was the Liverpool goalkeeper, who was who was standing in goal in front of the stand, uh, the Leppings Lane uh, end, the stand that was affected. Um, and he, I think he was the first to, to, to note that there was something going on and, and approach the referee. And it was at that point, I think, that the referee uh, halted the game. All the players were uh, taken off the pitch. Um, and I think then, at this point, the police were stationed in front of the stand or had been placed in front of the stand. I'm not sure if it was before the game was halted or not. No, it wasn't. So they were. Yeah. So it was only after the game was halted that the police then arrived. But the the Bruce Grobelar before he left the pitch, um, I think after the game had been halted, and but before he left the pitch, he uh, made a point of talking to the stewards and the police and saying, "Look, there are people dying in there. I can see people dying, and I can hear people screaming, and I can hear." sounds of distress and then you need to do something here you need to help them people need to get out and the, the steward or the policeman I don't I'm not sure who it was but it was a, a person in authority um, looked at him and said there's nothing I can do there's nothing I can do I, I you know I'm not allowed to do this I'm not allowed to let people out it's against the you know the match day protocol that we have here for, for, for security um, and actually that interview with Bruce Grobelar, the goalkeeper was, was quite harrowing um, his description of what was going on because he was completely helpless and then he he and the rest of the the players left the pitch the fact that it was such a big match of course meant that it was all videoed the CCTV cameras actual TV footage uh, press photographs so it is not just that this was the biggest sporting disaster in British history but it all all happened on film uh, which makes what happened subsequently even more difficult to explain which is that the police, the individuals who were there at the time in, in positions of authority and at an infrastructural, institutional level, decided that the main, prob- main cause of the problem was that the fans were drunk and violent and the fans were, were there, there were more fans than there should have been because people rushed in who didn't have tickets and that they were overpowering the police and the police were trying to help. So mm. from before the the rescue operations finished, before the the police and the emergency services, the ambulances and so on, had actually managed to rescue those who could be rescued. The the reverse, as we now know, false narrative of drunken fans, drunken violent fans. That, that story had already begun to be circulated. So the, the false narrative was a narrative that had been decided upon 
very early on, before the before the event was resolved in the, on a practical uh, level on the day. And indeed, I think you can argue that that was probably one of the reasons why the police and the stewards were so slow to acknowledge that there was something going on yes. in the first place. Yes. Um, because that uh, you know, there's you can't really think of any other explanation as to why you would see those scenes and not act um, mm. unless you've got this preconceived idea in your head that it's mm. you know that it's as you say um, something other than what's actually going on. So why are we talking about this today? Why why does it why did it occur to us as a as an, a useful, important, interesting podcast topic? So Hillsborough happened in nineteen eighty nine, as we've said. Um, and that since then, there's been a, 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 well, frankly, heroic fight, basically by the families who lost loved ones in, in, in the tragedy. And, and they've been involved in a, in a huge battle to basically reveal the truth about what happened in Hillsborough. Because ever since that day, um, and as we've spoken about before, the kind of dominant narrative of what happened at Hillsborough... Um, when you say dominant, I'm just going to... You've mentioned before, it's not the dominant narrative, it was the only narrative, mm-hmm. right? There was no other story mm. other than the fact that it was drunk football fans. Yeah. And it, it's a narrative that is reinforced through multiple official and unofficial sources. So the police start the narrative off, which then gets picked up by the media, newspaper reports, the Sun, British tabloid newspaper famously runs a story, headline the truth. As we now know, it was anything but. The judicial investigation, government sources, on, on, a, on as many aspects of the establishment that one could think of, the story was, the narrative was reinforced across all of these mm. institutions. You know, and it's definitely worth pointing out that the, the types of misrepresentations that were reported by The Sun in that article were, I mean... Well, frankly, hideous. Um, yes. I mean, they're absolutely hideous, and they were, you know, the, the, the characterization or characterizations that they used, um, which were just vile. Um, I can't remember what some of them were, but yeah. well, there, there were accusations that violent fans were pickpocketing the the bodies of the dead and urinating on the police officers as they were doing CPR and hitting them and beating the police up and and so on. So the general thrust of the narrative was that. And this is this is the logic I think which allowed the this version of the story to be to to be established as the as the only narrative, which is that we all know football fans are violent. There was an incident which led to football fans being killed. Therefore, it must clearly have been the fault of the football fans, who, as we know, are violent. So it's that this circular logic, and it's it's a circular logic which one could apply to all sorts of other. Examples, so you know, we could think about religious or racial prejudice, terrorism, terrorism, and and you know, Muslim people are terrorists. Therefore, that Muslim pe- person clearly is a terrorist. Or this particular event, which we don't yet know anything about, was yes. obviously perpetrated by a Muslim yes. because it is most likely yes. that a Muslim would be a terrorist. Yes. When yes. in fact, it is a white supremacist. Yes, y- yes. you know this. Or, or indeed, political protests. If you think of, uh, if you think of the way um, some of the Black Lives Matter protests have been represented in the media, as necessarily violent and destructive, because that is what protesters do, and therefore this one was necessarily destructive. So it's this circular logic that that means 
that you don't don't ever have to justify what you are claiming because it is an it is a commonsensical truth. Everybody knows this to be the case, uh, and that is what allows, as I said, all these various facets of the British establishment to label the the fans who are predominantly working class and predominantly northern. And I think these these are the two axes that. Um, we particularly want to focus on. The the establishment is located predominantly in the south, in London, and is a predominantly middle-class, upper-class uh, phenomenon. All of this makes what Tom is talking about in terms of the, the families themselves and Liverpool in some ways as a city all the more impressive in the sense that now, two and a half almost three decades later, there is a sudden change. I mean, it's quite sudden. It's only been in the last few years. There is a complete shift in how this story now gets told. I think the point you make, Anna, about the the fact that the narrative has begun to change is really interesting. And it is absolutely due to the fact that the families just refused to give up. They, They kept on fighting. They kept on fighting for 26 years. So when after the the original inquest, so after the investigation happened and there was an inquest into how the the 96 died and the inquest delivered a verdict of accidental death, meaning no one was responsible and no one would be prosecuted. And the families refused to accept that and they kept on fighting and they kept on fighting. And eventually they managed to get the government of the day to uh, grant them an independent inquiry and the families were able to choose who would lead and who would be be part of that independent inquiry. And then when that inquiry revealed its verdict, which was that the police are responsible, um, that allowed them to uh, strike down the original inquest verdict and to for the court to order another inquest, which has delivered its verdict two days ago. And uh, the verdict has moved from accidental death to unlawful killing, which now opens up the possibility that the police officers in charge will actually be prosecuted. Yeah, and that was a full 20, 27 years later. Mm. And for me personally, the reason why this, uh, what happened in the inquest a couple of days ago, was so interesting was because, so I mean, I, before, I guess maybe a year or so ago, before the second inquest and before. It was clear that the this kind of narrative was starting to be challenged and undermined. Uh, I hadn't really paid a great deal of attention to Hillsborough. I mean, it's anyone who's a sports fan in Britain, it will be fairly um, writ large in your memory. But it's it's not something that I'd kind of paid that much attention to. I'd I kind of very much kind of digested, you know, what what reporting at the time had said, and that was that it was just unruly mobs of working class um, football fans that, you know, just basically um, created the disaster. I, I, I believed that and that's what I thought was going on. And, and I, um, I think the events of the inquest kind of for the first time made me think not just about, um, well, it made me think more, more widely, I think, about how, well, it got me thinking really about how we characterise the working class and the context of the 1980s. Uh, in in the UK, and in particular, the kind of how that was geographical. Um, being a geographer, I'm always interested in geography. Um, but it just seemed 
to me that this was such a uh, such an easy deception to kind of lay the foundations for it just seemed to really that there was an audience for this kind of um, narrative that just that that meant that it wasn't challenged um, and I I didn't challenge it um, and I remember you know you know as I remember thinking quite quite a few times that you know these this Hillsborough thing it happened 25 years ago or it happened 20 years ago you know why, why are we still talking about this it was a disaster but come on I mean these things happen we've got to you know and that's what the families would have been up against for 30 years you know or the 27 years and the I think just the the well the desire to kind of keep going amongst all of that and take on the establishment in that way um, and that, the fact they were able to I think says an awful lot of things about uh, working class communities says a lot about Liverpool um, but it also says a lot of things about a lot of things about wider culture in Britain I suppose and I think really it it just made it clear to me how easy it was to make that lie to, for that lie to endure and to make it stick and I think that the, 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 what happened at the inquest a couple of days ago really hammered home as you could see the raw emotion from, from everyone involved you know that kind of 30 year battle um, and that fight against something which was so um, strong such a strong kind of lie that didn't seem to be able to be challenged um, given the weight of kind of authority behind it um, and I think that was a really powerful thing to kind of to watch uh, as someone who was very much taken in by that kind of deception. I, I think I think your point about class is, is absolutely crucial. Uh, for obvious reasons, there's been there have been a number of documentaries um, made by British TV over the years, uh, and they often take the same format, which is interviewing police officers in senior positions, interviewing police constables on the ground, interviewing fans, inter- interviewing families, and so on. And one of the things that's really noticeable is how the families and the police constables on the ground almost all have class-based regional accents, so either either Yorkshire, Sheffield accents or Liverpool, Scouse accents. And the senior police officers, the politicians, the judges all speak in what we might call received pronunciations, so, so posh, upper-class, southern English. And it's both those class and region binaries that... Uh, lie on top of another, which allow for the kind of narrative that you've just outlined to, to stick, uh, because it is the people, the upper class southerners who are in charge of the narrative, as it were, um, across judiciary and police and, and media. And they are all convinced that working class northern football fans are drunk and violent. So, it, you know, it's a, it works. It's, it's proved that they're... Uh, So now a lot of media sources are doing work on correcting the narrative so that over the last couple of years there has been a real shift, not just towards the question of was there or was there not this massive cover-up to what extent is the police narrative true or false, but there's also been a rewriting. And one of the, the journalists that you've mentioned... Tom a few times who's been at the forefront of reporting on Hillsborough for the Guardian is a guy named David Kahn um, and 
and you've noticed a number of things about his reporting, but one of those is his own identity and where he's from and the way that he speaks. Um, and so there's a politics here also now that gets a bit more a bit more interesting for our purposes in terms of of who now is has power to rewrite the story and how much does his background and the background of people who are now in positions of relative power compared to the families for example um, you know how much does it undermine their standing in the kind of Westminster elite world of of mainstream media and how much does it change the way that stories get told in terms of diversifying voices and declaring who gets to speak and who gets to tell authoritative narratives. Well, that's that's a, that's a very good point. It also makes the it makes power more diffuse. I think. Um, I think one of the things that has that have that has happened in in the twenty odd years, you know, we the, the conventional narrative of social change. I think is the sort of destruction of the class system and the the fusing of apparent fusing of working class and uh, upper class, whatever, which I don't think we particularly buy. I think we, we believe that society is still is still stratified across class. But one of the things that has happened is that the source of power is not as easily identifiable either in regional or in class terms, perhaps. Um, would, would we agree that the, the change in media voices means that it is less easy to identify those dividing lines? Than it was in 1989? I think in some ways, yes. Um, certainly on an individual level where um, you have, you know, more journalists and writers and reporters and lawyers, yeah. you know, who are from a more diverse range of backgrounds and regions. But in some ways it's not, it's kind of superficial in the sense that it's, so could Rosewater happen today? See, I think that's the question that most scared me a little bit from what we, what I witnessed on the live feed mm. on the BBC on uh, Tuesday. Um, was this idea that Hillsborough's always been this thing that happened a long time ago, and you know, in my mind, before this, before this new kind of evidence came to light, and everything else, it was this thing that, that was such a long time ago, and it, it, it's now kind of irrelevant. Um, but it it isn't at all. Um, it's it's really not irrelevant. And actually, I think it. I think the scary aspect of this is is that it absolutely could happen again, and it does. Yeah. Um, I, I think I think one of the one of the parallels that really speaks to me is thinking about the police presence and the police role in causing the thing that became Hillsborough, the, the event, the causing causing all those deaths. The similar similarity between that and police presence in protests. Um, one of the things, it's a British term, I don't know if it, it how, how popular it is outside Britain. There's a British term called kettling, which is what the police do uh, on, on demonstrations, on political demonstrations, which is to gradually cut down the space that any march or any protest or any demonstration is able to occupy. So you're doing the, doing something which is fundamentally exactly the same, which is putting a large number of people into a small area. And you're doing that because then it makes it easier to control that crowd, apparently. 
And, you know, 99% of the time it does. 99% of the time, the fact that the football stadium were all divided up into pens made it easier to control the birds because you, you know, you're not allowing them to spread out. You're not allowing them to take up space. But, of course, when it goes wrong, it goes horrendously wrong. And there, there are multiple examples of people being killed on demonstrations. You know, we could think of Blair Beach in the 1970s. We could think of Ian Tomlinson in, in the 21st century. And there are others as well of people who've been either killed by actual police brutality or killed in demonstrations where this attempt at crowd control goes wrong. And in both these cases, both, both, both the football example and the political demonstration example, it is the same kind of circular logic, which is the police are there to defend order and to defend themselves. And actually the rhetoric is to defend the fans and protesters as well. In, order, in other words, the police are there to facilitate the smooth passage of fans and the smooth, smooth passage of, of demonstrators. Of course, if you if you follow Foucault like we do, you you know that that is not the whole story. It can't be. Um, but when things go wrong, the police can always fall back on the commonsensical received wisdom that football fans and protesters are always violent, and therefore anything that goes wrong must be their fault. Yeah, I think. Well, it always seems to me that the process of cattling seems to be. An important part of framing events in a particular way, so you can, you know, you can create a big, large, angry crowd out of kettling, and from there you mm. can, you know, you can exert all sorts of controlling techniques, violence, yes. uh, intimidation, um, and the, and and you know, I think, I mean, I just think the parallels with the the initial response of the stewards at Hillsborough, which was to ignore the fact that there was all sorts of awfulness and, and terribleness going on right in front of them. Because this is, as soon as you characterise a group of people in that way, you know you you're permitted to carry out or not carry out all sorts of atrocities, really. Um, and I just think, yeah, I, I think that to me is, is is really scary. It shakes all sorts of beliefs you have in in public institutions and, and trust you have in public institutions. And it's probably not unrelated to what we were talking about quite a few weeks ago and under Gumbin and States of Exception. You know, it's 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 a similar process where you're allowed to create an environment where normal the normal actions of emergency services no longer apply, where it is permissible, or certainly has been for twenty six years, for the police and ambulance to react in a different way because this is a different situation. I think it's interesting too. I mean, there's connections as well um, with the some of the things we were talking about with Hannah Arendt and mm. and violence and the banality of evil as mm. well. That in a lot of these instances, the individuals that we're talking about aren't particularly bad or malicious people. Yes, they're working within a system yeah. that that controls and defines the limits to what they can do. So for a steward, you know, the the primary rule is that no one no one gets on the football pitch. Yes. No one gets on the football pitch because that's the most important rule. Yes. And yeah. it it takes yeah. you have to, to move beyond the point at which that yeah. rule no longer yeah. is relevant. Yes. And in order for that to happen, yes. people have to die. I mean yes. it, it's it's that kind of um, 
sort of horrific aspect of standard rules and and regulations and the enforcement of Mm -hmm. kind of spatial order. Um, That when things go wrong, they have to reach a certain point at which the rules become irrelevant. Um, And, I mean, this is a really interesting aspect for me because, or this topic is very interesting for me because being American, a lot, there's a lot of conversation in the U.S. about policing. But policing is quite different in the U.S. in some ways. Certainly we're talking about identities and groups and policing groups and policing different different areas, right? The policing of particular neighborhoods is very different based mm-hmm. on the populations that live there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right down to Ted Cruz saying he'll make it policy yeah. for, you know, Muslims to be policed in their neighborhoods, yeah. you know, which is absurd and um, horrifying. But it's a very similar... Um, similar aspect to policing here but I think what's what's quite unique is this practice of kettling because of course the police here don't all carry weapons so it's not as militarized a police force as in the United States Um, and so what you have is is on the face of it a police force that is slightly less powerful relative to the population that's being policed. And so what needs to happen is these kinds of complicated, um, insidious, and quite difficult to see visually. Like if you're talking about photographs or, or footage, you know, it's difficult to see this the spatial ordering that's going on and the very particular kinds of of ordering practices that are happening within spaces in Britain. Certainly with student demonstrations, for example, the way that student demonstrators have been kettled in recent years. Um, you know, this is a quite a unique um, but still very standardized way of policing um, that in a way produces visual evidence that supports the narrative that the institutions rely on. But of course, you know, you always say, we need to talk about resistance. If this narrative was so completely overpowering, there would never have been a space for a legal framework to challenge the story. Yes, except I think that form of legal resistance gets, or, or that form of resistance gets more and more difficult because, you know, uh, a few minutes ago I asked the question could Hillsborough happen today? And one of the differences between 1989 and the present, as you have pointed out, Hannah, is that football is very different, sport is very different. So the the class character of a typical football audience is very, very different now. It is now much, much harder for a working class family of four to be able to afford four season tickets than it was back then. You know, if you look at the if you look at the data in the way that the pri- average ticket prices at, at football grounds have gone up way, way, way more than inflation has, which automatically changes the, the class character of the audience, which automatically changes the nature of the sport. The sport is now a much more neoliberalized sport, and therefore the audience don't, don't have the same reputation. They don't, they don't have the same reputation of, 
of violence or drunkenness or, or hooliganism or any of those, those things. But of course, football as a characteristically working class occupation, as a characteristically working class emotional investment, as a public facing working class identity narrative is disintegrating because if you're working class you might not be able to buy tickets. Football matches are rarely screened live on terrestrial TV so you might not be able to afford to have Sky Sports or whatever it is the channel that you need. So the kind of resist working class resistance that was built around football, whether it is in the aftermath of Hillsborough or not, you know, the the kind of collective class based identity that football once represented, I don't think quite works in the same way. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean the the way that football clubs work now, I mean I don't I don't know that much about it. Um I think there's a willful ignorance on my part when it when it comes <laughs> to football clubs. But I mean the, a lot of a lot of clubs are owned by, you know, billionaires who come to Britain once every, you know, five years or so. Who owns the club you follow, Tom? Oh, some small time. Yeah. Um, uh, no one that significant. Uh, t- Tom's a Chelsea fan, so and Chelsea could never claim any well, kind of working-class allegiance anyway, so... Yeah. <laughs> I used to be until Leicester City happened. You're what we call a bandwagoner. <laughs> you, you're, you're just a glory-hunting Leicester City fan, <laughs> don't you? Yeah. When you grow up in Cornwall where there aren't really any football clubs nearby, you just get to pick. Yeah. But it is true. I mean, the the it's interesting to see how kind of old school football fans talk about you know the changing face of British football and you know as a as a person who's from the Bay Area where we have you know the San Francisco Giants and the San Francisco Forty ers and these kind of you know huge organizations that that churn out enormous profits. And in, it's insane, the, the kind of commodification of American sports. Yeah. To me, it's yeah. it's just standard practice to yeah. have massive pyrotechnics at yeah. any sporting event, yeah. you know, yeah. ever. And that's that's a sort of new-ish yeah. phenomenon, I would say, kind of from the 90s onwards. A lot of football clubs have embraced I think that, that model. I, I think that's a very interesting point. I think that's, that's another of the differences between 1989 and now, which is... In, in 1989, we, we, we spoke about family, the families resisting. The fa- and, you know, we talked about... We, we spoke about, if you listen, remember back to our Spotlight episode, about how, in certain moments, resistance needs to happen through institutions as well. You need institutional power. And the families didn't have any specific institutional power. They did have the support of one institution, which is the club. But the club didn't have that kind of financial institutional power back then that football clubs do now. So, you know, the club, the football club seemed to have traded a a much more localized, specific working class fan based identity for a more neoliberal, capitalist, market based financial clout. So I think if, if we want to make a case that Hillsborough couldn't happen today, Probably the single biggest reason is that clubs are much more effective at getting their own way in the in the system in the neoliberal system than perhaps they were were in the nineteen eighties. 
yeah, there's a there's a a more um, kind of powerful and and consolidated distinction between football fans and the institution of the yes. club, and that doesn't necessarily play out kind of individually or you know what we might yeah. call the grassroots level. Yeah. You know, football fans, kooky football fans, will still call in to Radio 5 Live and go on a half-hour tirade about the management of their favorite team. When, in fact, you know, it, it, things have moved on. Football yes. doesn't, doesn't actually happen like that anymore. Yeah. Um, and so there is far more control in terms of deciding who gets in yeah. to a football stadium at any given time and who does not get in. Yeah. And a lot, of, a lot of the people whose, you know, backgrounds and heritages and um and personal stories are wrapped up in 1980s football aren't necessarily the kinds of clubs are being gentrified in the way that you know particular urban spaces are being gentrified and and if you don't fit the class character of the or if you can't afford to live in this new gentrified neighborhood then you're then you're being moved out um and there is a there is a much wider context here, a wider story to be told about the gentrification of space in a, in a neoliberal world, of which I think uh, stadium, football stadia are a small part. Or a, a large part. Or a large part. I mean, if you think about London yeah. and the geography of London and, and where football stadiums in, in London are located, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's a, it's absolutely a huge part of, yeah. of yeah. being in London. Yeah. I think we're done. Yeah. Yes. We welcome comments, thoughts, um, any you know definitive yes. theories on class and. We now have a website. You can check our website out at www.stateofthetheory.com. Uh, obviously, you can tweet at us um, as usual. Comment on fa- Facebook. Comment on our SoundCloud page. If you get us through iTunes, then please rate and review us. It helps other people find our podcast. Um, we always like to hear your thoughts and we will see you next week thank you Tom you're welcome thank you for having me it's been a been a privilege (laughs) it's been a joy to have you see you next week Bye. bye bye we hope you enjoyed this episode I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz and me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you.